Welcome to STEAM Powered, where I have conversations with women in STEAM to learn a little bit about what they do and who they are. I'm your host, Michelle Ong. My guest today is Dr. Naomi Boxhall. Naomi is an epidemiologist and evidence strategy lead who is passionate about improving health for the population through her work in public health and now pharmacoepidemiology. Join us as we talk about epidemiology, leadership, and the art and scientific inquiry. Welcome to Steam Powered, Naomi. Thank you so much for having this conversation with me today. I'm really looking forward to hearing about your career in epidemiology and all this other very cool stuff that you'd like to discuss about, yeah, the context of your work. A pleasure. Thank you for having me. Yeah, fantastic. So you started your academic part of your career in biochemistry, genetics, with a bit of molecular bio. So what drew you to that field? It's an amazing combination. <laughs> um, that was... <laughs> So that was a little bit of a, a, um, a slip into that, actually. So when I was um, a young child, I wanted to be a veterinarian, a teacher, a doctor, a detective, and a nurse. That's good. So very much in the health sector, <laughs> but also with a little bit of curiosity entangled in there and teaching. Absolutely. Um, and so... I was fortunate enough to have a year between my um, high school and my uh, university times. And I worked with a veterinarian. And after working as a vet's assistant for a year, I was like, mm, I think I might have to change my entire career plan. <laughs> oh, no. Um, but it was good to have that thought so early. Yes, you know, I really, I really value the opportunity to have had that um, time with her and not have gone through that five-year degree in New Zealand to, mm. to then feel unhappy with the career that I'd chosen. Yeah. So I went to university um, thinking that I would still try and get into vet school at this point because I hadn't really figured out what else I was going to do. And um, then I saw the movie Outbreak. <laughs> <laughs> And so I chose my career based on a Hollywood movie. Still, um, good way of doing it. <laughs> I mean, you know, you've got to go somewhere, right? <laughs> um, so I thought uh, that looked really inspiring in terms of understanding um, disease outbreaks. And uh, I was less aware of other people and the ethics of being excited about these sorts of things um, at that <laughs> time in my life. But, you know, the idea of investigating outbreaks at a large scale um, mm. seemed very exciting to me. So, um, it, and it seemed to utilize all the bits of me that I wanted to use, you know, the explorative aspect, yes. the, um, yeah. the talking and teaching and education aspect the where are you going to be what what sort of disease vector is it going to be is it going to be a zoonotic disease so the the veterinary angle or is it going to be between humans you know so so mm. i went down that route and uh persuaded um one of the uh clinicians clinical epidemiologists the veterinary epidemiologists in the epi center in new zealand to mm -hmm. take me on, even though I didn't mm -hmm. have a veterinary background, um, to do a master's and a PhD. Um, but we always had in mind that I was very much likely to move into public health and because mm -hmm. that's where my heart lay. Yes. And so we made sure that my um, topics were 
molecular biology based, uh, mm-hmm. molecular epidemiology um, for my master's, and then more um, Campylobacter jejuni, which um, you may be aware is a infectious disease that causes a lot of burden in human yes. populations. Um, I was looking at it in chickens in my PhD, but as you can tell, it's kind of of interest for um, human epidemiology and public health as well. Absolutely. So very much public health adjacent. That's very cool. Yeah, and then um, and then I worked for National Institutes of Public Health for a little while in in New Zealand. Um, and while there, I was like the bridge between animal health and public health. Mm-hmm. Um, and in working. Um, with some people who were asking us for information from the US, I mentioned how I would want, I would have wanted to have gone to the EIS course that was run by the CDC. Oh. And the person I was speaking to said, well, have you thought about the sister course, which is the EPIET course in European, European member states? And I was like, what? <laughs> <laughs> so I investigated that um and and applied two years in a row and eventually um was selected as the british candidate for because i had a british passport yes and selected for as the british candidate for um based in the czech republic for two years that so is so cool kind of, yeah yeah i was very very lucky i love that like it was like you're able to make that transition just by you know adding the right subjects in to be able to get you into the right position for that. That's very fortunate. You're absolutely right. Like it's, it's, I think, um, you know, everybody says, oh, opportunity knocks and and so forth, but you have to, you have to be listening and you have to be kind of creating the doors. And so it is the luck that you make and, and the luck that you are aware of. And you have to sometimes push on those doors because the door might be jammed a little Absolutely. bit, you know, <laughs> have some uncomfortable discussions um, with certain people and believe in what you think you want to do at that time. Cause you only have the knowledge yes. that you have at that time. Right. Exactly. Um, and, and, and go for it and, and really back yourself in that way. So that's that kind is of, amazing. Yeah. And yeah, so being able to do all that travel as well for epidemiology that, you know, to me, that's a really giant perk, but it gives you also so much more exposure to so many different environments for the work you do, which is so important when you're going into public health. Definitely. I think um, one of the things that uh, the European program of interventional epidemiology training was really helping you understand was that different healthcare systems exist because and to incorporate different cultures that are um, present Mm. as well so this is very much european focused but there are similar training programs in other countries um, and other areas and we, we you know there is a there is a similar aspect a similar nature to them all because the idea is that we all understand the same jargon so we can communicate with each other when situations like <laughs> occur so at least exactly. you have a, a group of people because you can see it you can see it now mm. that in the UK the little tests there that we that people use are called lateral flow tests it's correct yes. it's not incorrect but in the in Australia, I think they're called rat tests for rapid antigen yes. tests. In Germany, <laughs> where I live, they're called Schnell tests, which is fast tests. You know, like they're all the same thing, and they're all called yes. different things for the population who are mm-hmm. using them. 
Um, so yeah, so it's quite it's quite interesting to be witnessing that difference where we in the background might know them all as the same thing. So <laughs> exactly. I worked for several years after being in the Czech Republic, working at the National Institute of Public Health there. I then moved to the UK and worked at the National Institute of Public Health there. Um, And I was there for seven years and I worked at various levels of the organization. So at the national level and at the regional level, um, working in London and the Southeast regions. Um, At the national level, I developed or helped develop a surveillance system for um, virucytotoxigenic Erythritia coli, oh. bit of a mouthful. Um, but yes. E. coli O157 is a good example of that. Um, it's just that there are <laughs> other strains as well that can cause that. Yes. Um, and and that was a, a, a national uh, surveillance system. And then I moved to the regional level after that um, and was providing support to uh, local outbreak investigations and so forth. Very much in the healthcare acquired. Mm-hmm. Um, and the gastroenteric groups of diseases. So the Salmonellas, yeah. the Campylobacters, Cryptosporidium um, investigations, and also norovirus outbreaks in hospitals and care homes and so forth. So that, that, that were, they were the main focuses of my job during that time. That's very neat. So how does, how does surveillance system work when you're monitoring, monitoring viruses and pathogens like that? There are certain diseases which are uh, notifiable and therefore there, if a GP has a suspicion that a patient might have one of these diseases, um, they would request a stool sample, which obviously mm-hmm. we don't like giving necessarily. It feels uncomfortable, <laughs> but that stool sample will then make its way through the laboratory, um, the, patho- uh, the pathology laboratories and would be, would have identified within it um, a infectious disease, and then that information would come to the public health teams. Um, it would also go back to the GP, um, mm-hmm. into their systems as well, and uh, the public health teams would be notified to then contact that patient and find out what they'd eaten, where they'd been, do an investigation with that person. Mm. Then what happens is if you have... Like you can imagine that happening in one part of the country. And then if that happens yes. again in another part of the country, somewhere along the line, you would hope that either through molecular testing, you can see that they're the same strain, that's of interest, or you through the questionnaires that you're doing with each of the people, you, you find out that they've been to the same farm or that they've eaten something that's that's from the same batch or something like that. And then you yeah. start thinking, we might have a problem here. <laughs> So that's that's kind of how that kicks off. Um, that's cool. So it's yeah. a bit like the um, contact tracing that's happening now for you know, proximity and like with people, but Absolutely. also with food stuffs and other, you know, things that people might get in touch with while yeah. they're out and about. Yeah, exactly. That's and different, different infectious diseases have different modes of uh, of Trends, spread. Yeah. You know, some are vector-borne, yes. malaria, um, tick-borne encephalitis, that sort of thing. Some mm-hmm. are respiratory. Well, I think we don't need to speak too much about those. We're all aware of those. <laughs> and um, and and some are zoonotic and some are foodborne and, and some are sexually transmitted. So um, they each have their own way of investigating because you're you're starting like 
with respiratory investigations, you're going to go mm-hmm. contact tracing. Um, you might do yep. that for uh, sexually transmitted diseases, but you're probably not going to do that for foodborne. You're going to do more what what foods and where have you been? Yeah, environmental so can, and all that kind exactly, of thing. Yeah. Exactly, exactly. And so environmental health officers actually get heavily involved in these questionnaires um, and delivering these questionnaires. So so it's work. you're working constantly with teams, not just the public health teams, but the environmental health teams mm-hmm. as well. Um, and the laboratories, as I mentioned, which are often sitting within hospitals and and so forth. Yeah. So it's quite a quite a linked up system, which is nice to work with. It is. Yeah. That's and, amazing. And now I'm like a, now I'm a pharmacoepidemiologist. So I did I worked in yes. public health for seven years. And then in 2013 I moved into pharmacoepidemiology. I see epidemiology as a toolbox. Um Mm-hmm. And you can apply it to multiple circumstances. So there are people working on environmental epidemiology. Um, and for instance, they might be looking at uh, toxins that have leaked into water and how that might be affecting mm-hmm. people who live in those areas um, and not other areas. That's the point there. Um, <laughs> yeah. And, and for me, pharmacoepidemiology is really based on understanding the safety and effectiveness of the medicinal products that we have in the market. I, mm-hmm. I'm not a clinical epidemiologist, so I work on, I don't work on the clinical trial side, but there is a point yep. at which a product is, it becomes available to, um, to be um, prescribed to people. And I work on all of the time downstream of that. So in real life, not in a clinical <laughs> trial setting, is this product still safe given, for instance, people who may be using it might be on many other drugs as well? Yes. Um, and is it, is it still effective? Um, and is it more effective than other drugs and so forth? So those are the things I look at now. That is very cool. So when you're going between the two parts, between clinical and non-clinical, um, how do you actually split down that route? Like, do they have to take on any other specialties to be able to work in those areas? Good question. Um, like, the people who become epidemiologists seem to have quite varied backgrounds, I would say. You know, um, <laughs> I know somebody who was a, a geologist at some point, uh, oh. somebody who was a sociologist. Uh, lots of people who come from, um, they might go into nursing or into medicine or into veterinary medicine and then think, mm-hmm. um, I actually like the, the population aspect of what I'm doing and not necessarily the individual uh, treatment of yes. this individual um being um and so and so they might move into various streams that are interesting and what are you curious about so somebody i went through the epiet program with i know is currently a clinical epidemiologist in one of the pharma companies we go everywhere (laughs) we're kind of of interested in everything came from everywhere go everywhere like there's probably one in your neighborhood you know (laughs) (laughs) so so you won't even um, know that (laughs) (laughs) it's quite it's quite um it's quite diverse and I really really enjoy that because as as we talked about earlier you know you have Mm. to be curious and curious about a lot of things and able to talk to a lot of people and that 
Mm. That those mixed backgrounds uh, really help us in those circumstances, I think. Absolutely, especially because it is a lot of investigative work, a lot of detecting and de- like just, you know, being a detective, as you said, that you wanted to be when you were younger. Yeah. And, you know, being able to have all these different backgrounds and all these different perspectives and things that inform you in what you're doing now is, you know, it, it just gives you so much information to work with. It's wonderful. I think so. And, and you know, being able to chat with people and 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 hear between what people are saying, you know, between the lines yes. and, and that kind of thing. Um, and then push a little bit harder and get into where the interesting bits lie. I think that's that's key to some of those investigations. And key to some of the work that I do now is, do you really want to know that? why do you want to know that what's what who are you trying to impress with this information that kind of thing <laughs> you know some of, sometimes my colleagues are like you can't ask that and I'm like I want to know <laughs> <laughs> well you don't know what the what information is going to actually you know provide that kind of use for the work that you do it's exactly the context exactly yeah. Exactly. Putting the work that you do in context of the bigger picture is really important. So um, it so is. We, we have to ask. Somebody has to ask, you know, in a lot of the cases. Yes. So um, you you either ask or you never find out. And that's, exactly. that's not acceptable to me sometimes. <laughs> no, it, and it's not. And I mean, when you're working with epidemiology, like you, you have to find out you, these are yeah. necessary things that you need to know. Exactly. And, you know, it, it's... Yeah, it's such a fascinating way of looking at the way that we do view public health because people don't always do things that we expect them to do. No. So you do need to ask these questions and sometimes they're very strange questions because people do strange things. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. So what made you shift from, you know, doing your other lab work, heading into pharmaco- uh, yeah, pharmacoepidemiology? Yeah, so I went from public health to pharmacoepidemiology um, at a point in my career where I <clears throat> I wanted to expand. You know, you can kind of see yourself going into management fairly soon in some occasions. And I mm-hmm. felt I was moving in that direction. I wanted to. I love I love being in charge. Um, so <laughs> it's, it's not, not uncomfortable, but I also missed the aspect of working with the tools that I had spent so long developing. And so yes. the idea of moving sideways, you could say sideways, um, in terms of actually, I actually had to take a step down in terms of seniority because I kind of had to mm. relearn how the tools that I had acquired fit into this new environment. And yes. I think that's really important to be comfortable doing that. Um, mm-hmm. Otherwise, you don't feel the benefit necessarily of utilizing all of the things that you have learned and all the skills that you have yes. learned. And so I think the being, being so broad in my background can make it quite challenging to find your home. Um, mm. But... I think having also lived abroad for so many of my years and traveled and so forth, I think I just find it hard to find a home anyway. 
Um, yes. <laughs> but but also makes you, like we've talked about, quite good at being able to pull on all these various bits and pieces of knowledge that you've acquired yes. over the many years and the many experiences and the many environments and settings in which you've worked. And I think mm-hmm. that makes you a very useful person to have in any business. And consequently, yes. you are always, or I hope so far anyway, able to find employment. So that's important to me. You know, I I, of um, course. I live alone and I need to support myself. So Exactly. So, well, yeah, because you said you, you do like being in charge, the transition towards leadership roles, I guess, wasn't very challenging. Like, how did you find that transition and having to, you know, adjust that skill set towards yeah. that kind of direction instead of the more hands-on? Yeah, there is there is an element of that transition where you have to let go of um, of doing the, the cool stuff, you know, um, <laughs> that you've, that you've trained for. And, and like I said, if you're not ready to let go, then maybe a sideways move into a slightly different angle of your career mm. is a great one to consider. Um, and people won't necessarily expect it. So it's, it's for you to really consider what you need in your career at your time when that's going on, I think. Um, but <clears throat> I think the, the transition to leadership I really enjoy what do you remember like I wanted to be a teacher at one point as well yes there is a huge element of training and encouraging and sitting back and watching and letting go a little bit in in leadership and steering Mm. the cart in one direction but being okay that all the people who are working with you um might be doing slightly different things as long as collectively we're all going in the same direction. And that's my job as a leader yes. to determine the direction. Mm. And as long as everybody feels safe in what they're doing and safe to try things and to learn things, that's the climate that I set as a leader. And, and I really enjoyed doing that. I, re- I really enjoy being in that position and, and taking that responsibility. Um, so I didn't find the transition to onerous in terms of what I enjoy, but I did find it hard to be not involved as much, you know, (laughs) sit on your hands sometimes and be like, yes, I think that's a great way for you to try to, you know, to go forward. Um, let's talk about how that goes in a wee while, even when you're thinking, "Mm, Mm. it might not succeed, succeed, but it might not have succeeded when you tried it years ago because, Things weren't mm-hmm. available. People weren't open, et cetera, et cetera. It might succeed now. So for goodness sake, you have to let people, people try. Absolutely. That's, that's how we learn, right? So, yeah. Yes. So I think that's the, I, I, I learned from several good leaders in my history and I hope that I create a similar feeling in my teams that they felt, that I felt when I was in their teams. Um, that's really important to me to provide as a leader. That is wonderful. That it's it's such good advice as well because a lot of people when they're coming through technical fields, they have they have a lot of control over what they do, yes. and they tend to be you know the it's just the nature of the work that we do. We end up being able to take responsibility for that kind of work. So when you have to transition to you know management or leadership role, you do have to learn to let go and 
you know, relinquish some of that control, <laughs> but, you know, still perform it in a kind of a guided sort of way. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. And be, yeah. be on hand for, for calls that say, how do I do this? You know, and, and having the mm. experience is wonderful to be able to say, well, when I was in this situation, this worked. When I was in that situation, that worked. So here's some things that here's some things that you might want to try. Go for gold, kind of thing. See what see what happens. That's amazing. It's, it's a it's a very nurturing environment, and I hope so. it, yeah, as long as you make it safe, then yes. you know people are able to grow themselves, and that's exactly. amazing. Exactly, that's what I hope so. Yes. So um, so leadership Brilliant. and management is um, is is I hope. Uh, open to many of the people who who come up as epidemiologists. I think we need more in um, more people who are aware of what it looks like at the ground level, what it looks like at the um, the coalface, as mm-hmm. it were, um, because then then you have you know that affects the downstream learning as well. The new people coming through this is this is to prepare them for the environments that they're going to experience as well. So yeah. That's wonderful. And yeah, because it's, it's such a broad field that as you were saying, like touches on so many different areas, you have to communicate with so many different parts of the community in order to be able to make these changes in order to be able to, you know, maintain public health. So, you know, having that experience is only really going to benefit when you rise up in your career into Mm -hmm. leadership roles and being able to communicate further with Mm -hmm. all the other people you need to work with. Absolutely. Absolutely. So given the breadth of your career so far, what is something that really surprised you about, you know, the field and people (laughs) in public health? Oh, gosh. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, what surprises me? I think nothing. I I think I'm very like, oh, really? That's what we do now. No, fine. <laughs> I think I think it's very hard to surprise me. Um, I mean, obviously, the toilet paper aspect of pandemic response—that that's been a real surprise. As you said. <laughs> I would really like I would really yeah. like to see. Um, obviously, I would like to see more women in leadership. I don't see enough. Mm-hmm. Um, I see. I see people who we train with technical skills, excellent technical skills, fall out of the workplace at some point in their career. And it tends to be at the point mm-hmm. where people want to start having families. And that is not acceptable to me. Um, I think it means that um, yes. we lose their skills and their knowledge and getting, getting those women back into the workforce when they've had time off, where they've had I'm mean, not time off like I'm not saying time off as in a holiday time yes, out of break. the workforce yeah, it's, yeah it's, exactly <laughs> time out of the yeah. workforce and they've been learning how to multitask how to deal with um you know emergency situations how to how to command and control and manage um quite complicated scenarios um of often multiple calendars and so, and so forth like we need to get them back into the workforce because we miss their knowledge and their skills moving up the chain into senior mm-hmm. leadership. Um, I think so. So that is something I would want to see happen in the future. I, I think 
one of the ways to fix that is to consider having equal paternal leave as maternal leave um, in terms of mm-hmm. it is no different to have a male or female in a in a position in a managerial position because either will spend some time away from this role having a family both are important and that's how yep. we actually start developing family friendly organizations ways of working etc cetera, etc cetera. it's not okay to just say we're family friendly and that means you can leave at four o'clock on a friday we have to actually demonstrate it by having policies that reflect equality and bringing people on through their work time and through their lifetime more so i think some Absolutely. other things that i i want to see happen and i would like to see happen more you be aware of um, books like Inferior and so forth and and where we've looked at, mm-hmm. where the author has looked at um, many accounts of, I can't remember her name, I'm really sorry. Um, the author has looked at many accounts yes, okay. of um, the lack of awareness and lack of consideration that men and women are in some ways different you know, crash test dummies shouldn't Mm -hmm. be built the same and we should test for a female crash test dummy as well as a male crash test dummy Um, because our bodies are Mm -hmm. on average different and we'll go through different phases of life as well. Um, And I know that some car manufacturers are starting to do that now, but it's still, I don't think, the standard. And that's what, how can that not be the standard? So um, I would like to see all of our analysis split uh, by gender uh, it has to I think it has to or split by biological sex I should say I think mm-hmm. um, because there could be a circumstance where a product does well in um, in may, men and does less well in women but a different product does well in women and different product does less well in mm-hmm. men so on average it looks fine but if you if you don't split them, you will never see this difference. And I think that's something that we exactly. should just be incorporating just in case we find out something. It's not because I really fundamentally believe that we necessarily will, but I want to know that we're not missing something. And that is yes, because it, it's it's an unknown. It's not something exactly. that we can definitively say that we know. Exactly. Until we start looking, we will never be certain that we know that it's not there kind of thing. And this is um yes. this is where women presenting at um, medical facilities with heart heart attacks present differently. Unless you start looking yep. for that, you won't know that that is mm-hmm. the case. And so women will continue to be less safe and less cared for, receive less care than um than men, and that's not okay by me. Yeah, and you know, we're starting to see changes now, but it does take time because these studies need to be redone. They need to be reviewed. And then you're starting to have to, you know, it, it takes a lot of time and resources to have to retest things exactly. that we know. And yeah, it's, yeah, it's one of those things that has to be done at some point eventually, but trying to get that prioritized is difficult. Yeah, trying to make the, the switch. Average. You're absolutely right. Trying to make that, you know, pushing yeah. like at some point we will make enough (laughs) some point there'll be enough weight to make it happen um so I'm there to push as well but yeah 
Absolutely. And, and that's great. That is absolutely wonderful, especially because you are working in a space where, you know, you, you are responsible for things like clinical trials and, you know, getting all of these, you know, test batteries set up. Yeah. It's, yeah. yeah, it's a good place to be in for you. <laughs> Hopefully I can make some movement in the right direction. So that's kind of, that's kind of what I, yes. what I want to be able to do. Yeah, very much. That is great. That is absolutely wonderful. And yeah, definitely something to strive for because as you say, there are not enough of us, of women in general, in these positions where they can offer these perspectives, mm. where they can say, well, actually we need to consider this. Mm -hmm. yeah. mm -hmm. Absolutely. Huh. Um, the other thing, you know, you mentioned clinical trials and running them. Yes, that is the case, but there are also other ways to run observational studies and we utilize real world data mm -hmm. a fair amount and real world data are data that exists for the clinical care or the administration of healthcare. So effectively um, mm -hmm. things like your uh, electronic medical record and so forth, or um, the insurance record that follows you through, um, mm -hmm. through your healthcare, using that in an anonymous fashion um, and provides you the bulk, uh, like, you know, you have a large number of people. Number, your data set is substantial, more substantial exactly, than the test. Exactly. Trials, yeah. There are, there are substantial elements of um, challenge around using those data sets as well, because you're only looking at what was recorded and is yes. what was recorded <laughs> what you needed, you know, to look at. So there it's, I'm not saying it's exactly. the perfect, it's not the perfect answer in, no. in every case. But where possible, I think it, it, it behooves us to utilise those in, in ways that um, benefit the, the entire population. And that might mean, um, you know, sub-analyses sub in that shape and form as well. Yes. And, I mean, these days we've got data everywhere. Like, you know, everyone's talking about data, big data, and everything's being collected and being yeah. analysed and being turned into metrics. And, you know, we've got so much data available to us. But, again, as you said, we're not, we're collecting a lot, but we're not collecting everything that individuals need to find what they need. Yeah. So you have your gaps that, yeah. you know, might not make the data as valuable as you know, it could be for what you're looking for. Yeah. And then, and in lots of circumstances, we're able to, um, to work with clinicians, um, to enrich that data potentially, um, mm -hmm. or we work with clinicians to collect new data so specific to answer the question that we have in mind so there's multiple yes. ways that we conduct these observational studies in the pharmacoepidemiology world and that's kind of that's kind of what my job is now to work out which is the best way to collect data to answer those questions so I work very much on that that front side of the scientific method circle and not necessarily yes. on the <laughs> dissemination side anymore <laughs> yes but that, that is a fascinating side because you are, you know, having to look at all these different contexts for people and you were talking about the interlocution of, you know, where you're applying your work yeah. and where you're collecting the information that you need. And, you know, that to me is so important. And I was just talking just recently to another data person and she was talking about, you know, warm data. It's a, the thing that she's... Uh, there's the Bateson Institute and they have this concept of warm data versus cold data. Cold data is the stuff that, you know, we collect in science and, you know, mm -hmm. the stuff that you're working with. The warm data is adding context to that information. So where are the people? Are they, mm -hmm. you know, are these people in 
urban environments or are they in villages? Right. Are they in yeah. cohabitation stuff? It's talking about all these extra little bits about where yeah. the data is that you drew and you know what's actually important to them. Yeah. yeah. Um, one example that she gave for the warm data was they were in can't remember where it was that she said they were looking at providing uh homes for the homeless and so there was this you know availability but some people weren't taking it and they couldn't understand why some people were choosing to be homeless and one of the things that they determined once they spoke to people who were on the ground was that they were rejecting this offer of a home because they had pets and these homes did not allow mm -hmm. pets so they were yeah. choosing not to do it because you know they wanted to stay with their pets yeah. And, you know, it's these little bits of information, but you don't know what you're missing because yeah. all of this data is more contextual, but not directly related to the problem. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And absolutely. yeah, it, it makes it a very interesting problem. Yeah. yeah I think, you, you know, you have to be able to, I think certainly my job is, um, or my career has been being able to communicate with a lot of different people and a lot of different people, with different backgrounds, like we talked about diversity before in mm. terms of where people had come from and and I think there's you know the communication with the with the with the laboratory staff there's the communication with field staff there's the communication with statistics staff there's a the communication with all the people who participate in the understanding of the question that you're asked you're hoping to answer um, and all the elements that make mm -hmm. up the population that you're trying to understand that answer in. And that can include yes. social workers and, and care workers and environmental health officers and hopefully the people themselves who you're trying to actually like understand. Yes. <laughs> you know, let's not forget. Absolutely. Um, we have a very strong <laughs> foundation of patient centricity. You know, what is the, what is, how, how do you feel about the product that you're using to manage your condition and, and so forth um how do you how mm -hmm. do you take it how does it how does it make you feel um do you know is it easy to take at the times that we've suggested you take it like with food what does that mean personally I'm on a, a daily medication and I've had to really work out when to take it because I need to have it with food but I also have a food schedule mm -hmm. that I prefer and then there's sometimes when I'm out in the evening with friends and my alarm goes off because I have to use an alarm and I have to take a pill out and pop a pill, yeah. in, you know, in the, in the middle of a restaurant. And does that make you feel uncomfortable? Does that make you feel, you know, how does that interact with your daily life? So, yes. so there's a lot of, there's a lot of aspects of what we try to understand that we don't know to ask mm -hmm. for necessarily, but we have to think about the people that we're trying to understand That's right. for. Yeah. And I guess in the context of health, a lot of it's because we do stigmatize our health in some ways because, yeah. you know, certain conditions aren't acceptable to have. You don't talk about certain parts of your health because it's just not discussed. It's taboos around talking about your sexual health or reproductive health yeah. or, yeah. you know, things to do with toileting, like all these sorts of things. Like it, it does have a massive impact on the way that we perceive treatment. And yes. it's, yeah, it's an interesting problem to have to address when it comes to doing the work that you do. 
Yeah, and it's really interesting you mentioned that because I think when I've spoken to my friends who are medic medics, trained you know doctors, they have a totally different relationship. Mm. They're like you know better living through medication, you know. And I'm like, yeah, but I feel I feel ashamed that I need to take this. And they're like, it's a nerve, <laughs> just you know take it sort of thing and it's a real it's a real it's really different how you perceive that and I'm like oh I'm actually a patient now oh interesting interesting (laughs) so so I'm seeing the world from a different perspective but the thing is I shouldn't have to wait until I am on the receiving end to think about these things and be willing to believe yes and be willing to understand and that's where that I think the I'm I'm fortunate in the way that I'm a, a woman and and I'm used to, for instance, street harassment. You know, it doesn't happen when you're yes. with a man. So mm-hmm. when you're explaining to them that it has happened to you when you've traveled down the street on your own, there's an element of like, well, I've never seen that happen to you. And I'm like, believe me. <laughs> and this aspect of believe me folds into so many other elements. I've never thought about that. Hmm. Thanks, Michelle. <laughs> Good to talk with you. <laughs> yeah, it, it, it's interesting about perspective. <laughs> perspective. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But yeah, absolutely. it really is about perspective because you don't, yeah, you're, you're happy to be supportive when someone else is talking to you about it, but you don't think about how you'll respond yourself yeah. until you're in that situation. It, it's yeah. a very interesting way that you have to shift your thinking. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, you do. More more frequently than I do, apparently. <laughs> I tried to be. I tried to. Do it, I missed that one. Missed that shift. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It, it, it's things that you do take for granted, though. And again, because it's the kind of space that you're in all the time, you're used to ans- asking these questions, and yeah, you forget about yourself as a context. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Definitely. Yeah. I am. I am one of the one of the people who uh, I do have to be careful because sometimes I'm like. Oh, why did you have to have an MRI? And some people don't want to talk about this. <laughs> yeah, like, no, like, only if you feel comfortable. I this me. might be an invasive question. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> I've just gotten so used to asking people random questions. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Whoops. Um, yeah. When does it? When does Whoops. it cross the line between yeah. you know investigating and probing kind of thing? You know, and being just yeah. lazy. <laughs> so exactly. But yeah, it, it does again highlight that we do kind of um, we do as a society hide when we're unhealthy or unwell. Yeah, yeah. it feels like and, we're supposed to, yeah, doesn't it? It feels like there's there should be a shame yeah. around it, um, and and fundamentally, I don't think there should be. And that's even before I had my my situation recently. But yeah. um, but how like how to shift things from there. And, and it does start with probably, it does start with, you know, even at work when you have to take time off because you're not well or when you have to take time off because you're somebody in your family's not well and they need caregiving. And it's mm-hmm. like, it's seen as a, it's seen as a, oh, you're going to be away from work aspect. How do we change that? We really need to change that. It's Yes. It's, it's, we really need to go back to what they say on airplanes, which is, you know, put your, put your oxygen mask on before you put on other assist others thank you thank you thanks for completing that (laughs) well-known that's okay we haven't been on planes for a while (laughs) (laughs) that's true (laughs) sorry sorry for bringing you back to those glory days of traveling (laughs) 
Mm. Oh, worth a reminder. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, it, it definitely is. Like we, we, we're starting to make that shift towards putting the people first, but there's still, you know, a lot of tradition behind the way that we do treat all of these situations yes yes absolutely yeah. and that's not going to change quickly I know I know so many things are not no. going to change at the speed that I kind of want them to change I mean if they did all change at that speed I'd probably be wow how did that happen what but, <laughs> too fast <laughs> yeah too fast too yeah. fast guys um but yeah uh, yeah it's it's an interesting mm-hmm. situation that's for sure it is a very interesting situation. And I mean, even again, bring it back to the pandemic that which we shall discuss, um, that you're still seeing that as well. So people are still going to work when they're testing positive, even if they don't want to be. And it's like, well, we're still there, even though, you know, we're this far in and that's still the kind of attitude that, you know, some people have and it, yeah. it hasn't shifted that kind of behavior or that kind of belief in the way that things should be done. But if the yeah. social provisions are not there to allow people to recover and, exactly. and or not even recover, but to um, to shed safely and to isolate safely yes. and to protect um, mm-hmm. themselves and others, or in this case, others, you know, if the social structure is not based on that protection of others, then mm-hmm. we can't see that it's unfair for people to go back to work. I mean, this is a thing we can't, yeah. we can't pillarize people for doing that and for making that choice. No, if they've absolutely. had to choose between working while positive or not being able to feed their family. Unemployment. That's, yeah. that's not a it's... choice that is fair to have to ask people to make. And so, exactly, you know, that's where, like I said to you earlier, before we, before we pressed record, I am, mm-hmm. I respect very highly my colleagues who are having to work in public health and making the public health policy decisions at the moment, I would really struggle to balance all of the trade-offs, you know, the economy versus exactly. health versus this, versus education versus um, parents going absolutely spare because they've got to somehow homeschool children, three-year-olds, you know, I am, I would not be able to participate in that decision making <laughs> process um and so yes. I really I I can see how tough it is and it must suck it must really suck so yeah and yeah absolutely and no matter what choices that you make there's going to be a sacrifice somewhere and yes it's yes exactly that's yeah. the, that's exactly it isn't it and mm. and we don't get the choice in what those sacrifices necessarily are, um, you know, as the public. Yes. Um, that's right. That's why we elected these officials. <laughs> <laughs> to make exactly. those choices on our so, behalves. <laughs> that's right. Because, yeah, a lot of people, the a lot of people who make the complaints, like in, in that position, not many of us, it doesn't matter how educated we are, not many of us, would be able to make those sorts of difficult choices and yeah there's just too many factors involved yeah yeah yeah, yeah. I don't ha- I don't have a framework mm. to make those choices with all the inputs and all the outputs that are necessary how can you how can you do that that's it's so many things so um so yeah so it's a, it's a tough situation I think for everybody to be in and that includes the people who are having mm-hmm. to make those decisions on a daily basis 
um, for our That's right. for our health. I'm going to say health and well being because you know the the economy aspect does affect our well being as well, and education affects that. Too. That's right. So um, so yeah. Yes, it's all connected. It is. It really is. It really is. <laughs> yeah, we don't operate in a vacuum. We're not a rock. We're not an island. I mean. We are on an island. You are on an island. <laughs> <laughs> it's not exactly helping. <laughs> yeah. I think, I mean, yes. one of the things that always fascinated me about um, when I got into molecular biology and biochemistry and genetics and so forth, one of the things that fascinated me was the fact that viruses don't meet the criteria. I mean, at that time. They may that we may have changed the criteria. We may have different criteria now. At that time, viruses did not meet the criteria to qualify as being live. They are not alive, and it absolutely blows my mind. It still does, even now. It blows my mind that these little organisms that are just a tangled bit of, you know, nucleic acid with some proteins. At that time, I was like, oh my goodness, the things that they do to the, us multicellular sentient beings, you know, and would they melt mm-hmm. us on the inside if they're a filovirus? That's yes. what? That's incredible. And then they've melted us as a population. That's something that I could never <laughs> have expected. I was like, wow, that's amazing. And so from from my perspective as a, as a you know undergrad, I was just my mind was blown and it still is in some regards you know these Mm. these diseases and the infectious diseases with microorganisms just incredible incredible how they can decimate um the human and the population so yeah it is it it's you know we're, we're considered very complex organisms ourselves and yet you know these very, very tiny things just manage to, you know, undo us completely. Absolutely. And, you know, it's not even just at the direct physical impact, it's the psychological impact and everything mm-hmm. else around is like, this everything. is yeah. complete annihilation. Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. Oh, no, yeah. we're doomed. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's, it's just, it's like a, it's a multi-factor strike and you think, wow, like just the impact of something that is, you know, microscopic. It's yep. incredible. It's yeah. And that's even before we get into Fascinating the, in a really horrid way. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And that's even before we get into the considerations around long COVID and things like that, that we don't, we haven't, we haven't investigated exactly. enough yet. And it will, this will play out over years to come. Ooh. I know. Yeah. Welcome. I know. <laughs> Sorry. Decades of research. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> mm. Mm. who do we know who does some of that <laughs> <laughs> exactly yeah you guys can be busy for a while <laughs> yes yes my dad was right in uh in getting me into the sciences because it's probably not something I'm going to have to um leave for a while um in terms of no matter how my you know, desire for storytelling and art and creativity um, is is pres- ever present. Um, I think I'll have to bring that into the sciences because that's something that um, we need more of in the sciences. Like we talked about the understanding of how people are, 
who people are, what they do. Um, I think we have to be more mindful. Hmm, let me think how I want to express this. So the questions exist because somebody, somebody has thought this is amazing or this is beautiful or this is incredible or I don't understand how this works. And to, and to ask those questions, you have to be observing from a very different perspective. You're not observing as a, as a scientist, as a technologist, as an engineer, you know, as a mathematician. Yes. You're observing as a human. This is interesting. And then and it's that mm -hmm. sort of element of um, that we bring as humans to our roles as scientists. We are always creating. We are always understanding the world. And it's that, that sort of little injection of an artist's brain, I think, which drives the wheel forward, which drives that, um, the, that questioning. So I think, I think from a you know, from a technology yes. perspective, technology is so important in how we design our lives. You don't have the need to design our lives unless somebody says, I don't like this, or this could be better. You know, so there's always that, like that first, before yes. the science question comes the, the observation or the art question almost. So I really think that. Absolutely. There's, there's, um, you know, my dad did push me into the, the sciences and more and more as I go through into leadership, into management, into, and into communicate, into communication with other parts of my organization and other, um, stakeholders, you know, I'm using the storytelling aspect of English and, and, um, history and so forth. I'm using all of those elements that, aren't considered they're not considered the sciences and of course they're not the sciences but they're necessary to make the sciences accessible <laughs> and I think I think we downplay right. their their role so much too much I think there's an element of well you've gone into sciences that's it you're in you're in stem now I'm still quite creative <laughs> as an individual thank you very much <laughs> I still like observing the world. I still see the world exactly. from, from a different perspective. And we need to create. We need recreational time. We need to create, because science is creative in some ways too. Um, you are making mm -hmm. something or you're observing something, you're investigating something that has never been done before. And that's what I feel. Yes, is and that requires creativity exactly. and inspiration. Exactly. And that comes, that comes from, I see, I think yes. that comes from seeing the world from an artist's perspective. Sometimes that's beautiful. The way that viruses decimate population, that's incredible. How do we make it not happen? in <laughs> That's what it, it is. Yeah. As, that's pretty much why I've called it steam powered because the A in steam, I feel is just so important. There's just so much of the arts in so many different aspects of the arts that informs and influences the sciences and STEM and how we, how we create and how we solve and how we inquire. Yeah. And yeah. So actually, you know, preaching to the choir right here. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I, I very much enjoy the fact, you know, that um, sometimes communication of public health policy is also done via the method of like via drama drive plays that go on on the on tour and so forth i think that's incredible you know 
we shouldn't that's cool we shouldn't forget that there are many mechanisms by which we can communicate with people and that's not always the very dry please look at the web page of the ministry of health kind of thing that we're seeing at the moment (laughs) (laughs) very much so because yeah very dry all numbers and it's like well okay this is very meaningful in a very boring way thank you <laughs> even i struggle even i struggle don't worry yes <laughs> i'll admit don't tell <laughs> that's good to know very comforting actually <laughs> yeah 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 like um we can't that's tell everybody right. so that has to be okay. scrubbed but no <laughs> no i do I, yeah. <laughs> I, I i do struggle with, with some of the i'm like reading carefully okay this but that or this and that, etc. Does that and apply to the but? Does it like? Yes. Is my specific circumstance? You need a flowchart. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, yes, yes. I know there are a few people yeah. who have tried to make flowcharts from these, things <laughs> and they're like, okay, well, I did the first one. If there's an update. Can someone? Ooh. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. So. We'll get there. We'll get there. (laughs) We need need the artists. We need the artists to come on board. Please, please come and save us all. (laughs) We do. Yeah. Yes. And, um, yeah, on a slight segue, but not quite. So there is actually, um, spoken to another guest, her name is Annette. So one of her things is data visualization for um, the Canadian Energy Regulator. So they're communicating all of these economics things to the people Amazing. in a very visual way that allows people to be able to, you know, understand and comprehend all of these annoyingly complex and dry details mm-hmm. in, you know, a much more accessible way. Mm. And more people are doing that. It's like, yes, we mm. need more of these people mm-hmm. using their visualization and art skills to be able to translate and communicate all of these very complex bits of information. Yeah, absolutely. It's wonderful. Absolutely. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Um, more yeah. of that, please, in my day to day. Oh, yes. More of that would be wonderful. Excellent. Okay. Uh, I think we've actually covered your points, but unless there is anything else you'd like to address in particular, uh, we can move on to the soft questions. Go for it. I'm, I'm intrigued by these soft questions. I tend to have long answers for those, unfortunately. So let's see. excellent that's wonderful i do like that (laughs) okay so first question what hobby or interest do you have that's most unrelated to your field of work Mm, well that's hard because as i've said epidemiologists are everywhere so everything's related um let's see exactly my hobby yeah my hobbies and interests are you're talking about a go on you were talking about a midlife crisis. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. So I am writing a novel. Um, I oh, am, wonderful. Um, I, yes, I'm really enjoying that. I sew my own clothes. I think that's probably, is that, yeah, that's probably the least related to work. Um, but I also make music. <laughs> Don't and... think you can tie epidemiology into that. <laughs> yeah, no, Exactly. And I sing in um, sing in a choir or a, a small group. Um, so that's great. so basically, I'd say if singing if singing and music is maths, maths is related to epidemiology. <laughs> if uh, photography is like technology, would you say technology? 
Uh, photography? No, that's definitely art. That's definitely mm-hmm. art. There is a bit of maths involved. Okay, there, observation like... fits in. <laughs> yes. Yeah, exactly. But also observation skills fit into epidemiology. Okay, that's too related. Then I think <laughs> sewing would be the one seamstress, basically. I I really enjoy the engineering yes. aspect. It kind of it does is engineering design together. It is. You have to have an imagination to see what you want and then take a flat object and make it fit a very non-flat object. Absolutely. <laughs> so, so I really enjoy that. That is very cool. So do you yeah. draft your own patterns? Yeah. Um, I do. Um, I... I, I'm not drafting at the moment. I'm not drawing them out and going, oh, yes, that's fabulous, darling. I'm going to make that. <laughs> um, it's more, I just want a pair of trousers that fit. I just want yep. a top that fits and feels comfortable. And it's like, it's that kind of, I'm, I'm still at the basics. Just get a wardrobe that fits and feels comfortable and is in natural fibers and things like that. So that yeah, is very cool. I'm doing. I do enjoy sewing. I haven't done that for a while. But one of the things I did like doing is reverse engineering stuff that I saw online. <laughs> so took a lot of joy out of that. Yes, um, I do. I, I do. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> yes, definitely. Yes. So, yeah, that's definitely a lot of fun and very much engineering. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that- yeah, I think so. I think it fits in the engineering section. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. I think it does. That's very cool. So, yeah, do you do that regularly or just, you know, when the mood strikes? I mean, I have half a piece that's a half a top that's made at the moment. Um, yeah, oh, nice. I, I fit it in like um, I would say some evenings I'll put on a murder mystery uh, and Good. and then sew in in happy, glorious like in like uh, introversion kind of thing. I'll have an introverted night um, <laughs> and um, yeah, glass of wine, bit of stitching, murder mystery job done <laughs> excellent that sounds like one of my perfect yeah. evenings <laughs> very cool <Yes. laughs> exactly yes. i've got two cats as well so they'll keep me company and uh oh, that's you know nice. i am i am turning into a very happy cat lady yeah <laughs> well that's all right because at least you can talk to the cats and the cats can ignore you <laughs> yes perfect exactly (laughs) brilliant conversations as you can imagine yes sparkling (laughs) definitely excellent okay and next question which childhood book holds the most hold the strongest memories for you the lion the witch in the wardrobe i have to answer that it was the first book i ever read under the table as a four-year-old basically um yeah i mean there's a lot on TikTok now about reading being a form of dissociation. What? So maybe that's not so great, but no. but I absolutely loved it. Mm. I didn't, of course I didn't pick up on the on the undertones and the, <laughs> and the um, analogies and so forth. I just yes. thought it was a fantastic story about how how you don't betray people, how how easy it is to be lured by by things that aren't good for you and and Mm -hmm. what you should do some you know the right thing you should do and it really appealed to the to the j in my enfj-ness if you go by mbti (laughs) if you follow any of that astrology or yeah that's that's quite reasonable i can totally it's very reasonable i can see that (laughs) yeah 
Yeah, I, I really enjoyed it. And I've looked in the backs of cupboards everywhere. Every Just in case. Airbnb I go to, I'm like, come on. Just come one. on, Just Narnia's got to be around here somewhere. <laughs> you just need one cupboard, that's all. <laughs> there's, a, there's, a, there's a book I recently read um, called The 10,000 Doors, which is, oh. which I can imagine if somebody read The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe, they would be like, oh, doors, doors have a fascination. Like, like I could imagine, <laughs> yeah. It's a novel, um, but it, it was, I, I thought it was very well written. Excellent. Speaking of novels, I forgot to ask, what is the novel that you're writing? Oh, can't give away that intellectual <laughs> property right now. Um, oh. I want to get it published. Of course. Um, I don't want to, to the post. No, I'm writing, it's, it's set in ancient Greece, actually. Um, and it, it, it comes from, there was something that Mary Beard, who is a classicist yes, um, in Beard. the UK, she said she had a line in her manifesto, um, and and I was just like, <gasps> da -da -da -da, idea, you know, you know how those like yeah came One of those to me. And I just great. finished reading. I just finished exactly. I just finished reading Madeline Miller's um, Circe as well, mm -hmm. and so I was in that frame of mind. I, I thought Circe was beautiful, a beautiful story that was adjacent to all of the stories that we know and are familiar with. And I was like. I have an idea. I'm going to write it. Um, so wonderful. So we will see. I'm a third of the way through. Um, it is hard to find time Excellent. though. Like we spend so much of our time at the moment working remotely on our computers mm. that the last thing I want to do when I get get home, when I finish work, is type again because I've spent all my day doing this. So it is a challenge yep. to for me to um, to get through it, but. Every time I sit down at a cafe and write, I absolutely love it. So oh, it's so obviously something that is in me that I need to get out. Yeah. yeah absolutely. Yeah. And it's so good that you're actually doing it. Like, even if you don't have all the time to, be able to commit to it, the fact that you're able to sit down every now and then and put pen to paper, that that's wonderful. Yeah. Oh, very yeah. exciting. It's taken a couple of years. I've had the idea for a couple of years. It's been melting in my head. And it's like it, it's only recently that I've been like, Come on, come on. Let's put, get, get it, it out. out. Yeah. So excellent. Yeah. No, that's amazing. Yeah. I love that. <laughs> well, good luck. Hopefully that you can get that finished. Or Thank you. Know, soon. Not soon. <laughs> yeah. Another couple of months, I think. And then, and then I start trying to hawk it to somebody. Oh, to that's not bad. So there's another step. Well, that's all right. Yeah. Let's yeah. see. Let's Worst case, you self-publish and you, at least you get it out of your system. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. At the moment, my friends are like, um, thanks for sending me another chapter. I'll get back to you on it. <laughs> it's hard. It's hard to them oh. being my, my primary readers, my early readers. That's okay. I'd volunteer. That sounds great. <laughs> thanks, Michelle. Oh, that's right. <laughs> You're welcome. Okay. And lastly, what advice would you give someone who'd like to do what you do and what advice should they ignore? Oh man, that's a toughie. Yeah, not that soft. <laughs> if somebody would like to do what I do. Okay. If somebody would like to do what I do, um, I think I think some advice is like, uh, I don't know. I don't know very many people who got into epidemiology as undergrads. I don't even know if that's possible to do. So mm -hmm. I think most people come into it as postgrads. Um, mm -hmm. So you've done a primary degree and whatever. Um, 
I think my real advice is never think that you can't do it. Like yeah. really never think that it is not for you. Um, never think that your background in whatever your background is, journalism, um, you know, geography, like history, a particular point in time of the Neolithic age. I don't, it doesn't matter. Like never think that this is not the place for you. There is a place for you in it. Make it. Um, what advice would I tell them to ignore? <laughs> I haven't touched data in years. Um, I'm not a statistician. I'm really, not. I'm really not. So if anybody's like, oh, you have to be really good at statistics to do that, ignore it. You don't. It helps. Absolutely it helps. That's interesting. And it's not something you can... It's not something you can avoid, um, but you work with statisticians. The point of doing what I do is that I work with people who are very good in their field and are experts in their field. I have to know enough mm -hmm. to be able to say, I don't know anymore. I'm going to find the right person who can help and, and participate. That's my job. Um, Excellent. So ignore anybody who says it's all about statistics, isn't it? Well, that is very good to know because that is the assumption that a lot of people make about epidemiology because it is about the data and what you can determine from the data. But there's so much more to it than that, as you, you know, as you've been describing. It's about absolutely the inquiry. It's about you know the communication. So there, there is a lot to it more than just staring at your numbers. Absolutely. But my first piece of advice holds for anybody with a mathematics background: there is a place yep. for you here. Yes. So <laughs> if you have a stats background and a mathematics background, come on board, come and be an epidemiologist, you know? So, so I think yes. I, I'm happy with that. Yeah. <laughs> That's great. That is wonderful Good. advice. And yeah, a lot of the time, I think no matter what field you're in, a lot of people don't realize that there might be a place for them there. And you know, you, you often don't yeah. know your own place until you explore. Yeah, it can be tough. Like I, I, like we spoke of before, you do, I know people say, oh, you make your own luck. And that is in some part true. You, it's more mm. like you, you open the door when opportunity knocks. And yes. what you have to do is make sure you've put the doors in place and make sure the doors are ajar. And sometimes they take, sometimes they're a little bit stuck and you might have to push a little yeah. bit harder. Um, but those, yes. like, do it, do it, do it, do it. Mm -hmm. It is worth it to just keep exploring and keep looking for your home. And maybe your home is in the gaps. Maybe your home is in the liminal spaces between those doors. And that's perfectly awesome, too, to hang out in the corridors and, and be chatting to the other people who are going into multiple doors. <laughs> exactly. And, yeah, absolutely wonderful. And because now we're getting into a space where there is so much crossover with everything these days. Like there is a lot of room to explore and a lot of those corridors and a lot of those spaces that are in between that bridge all of the other places. Exactly. It's, it's yeah. really important to have all those people who are the kind of the liminal, like moving, networking, multiple career people and, and, and so forth. And, that that curiosity to keep exploring is a really important thing to bring to your life and your career, I think. Yes. So feel it, do it. Excellent. That's a great way to end. <laughs>
All right. So thank you so much, Naomi. <laughs> it's been wonderful speaking to you today about all of these amazing things and you know, your incredible career and what you do with all of this information, all the knowledge that you've accumulated and been able to share. So yeah, I really appreciate hearing all of this from you. If people would like to know more about your work, where can they go? Yes, certainly. If people want to contact me personally, they can approach me on Twitter. Um, my handle there is Dr. Gnomes Boxall, N-O-M-E-S Boxall. And uh, careful with the S, there is actually a Dr. Gnome Boxall and we do know each other. <laughs> um, then if people want to contact me professionally, they are more than welcome to look for Naomi Boxall on uh, LinkedIn and I am, or like, I think it's LinkedIn slash Naomi Boxall as well, all one word. Um, there's only, I believe, one Naomi Boxall epidemiologist. If you use that as a as search terms, um, you should come, come up with me. I'm happy to take any and all questions via um, either of those means. Uh, I love introducing people to what I do, and we're always looking for good people to bring on board. Um, so absolutely please do feel free to contact. Absolutely. Thank you so much. This, yeah, such so generous with your time. It's wonderful. All right. So thank you again. It has been, been absolutely pleasure. amazing. I've enjoyed this conversation so much. <laughs> yes. So no. yeah, thank Thanks. you. And I hope you have an amazing day. I've really enjoyed speaking with Naomi about her career in epidemiology and her perspectives on leadership and the kinds of changes that we need to affect to bring more diversity and equity into both the workplace and the work that we do. To learn more about Naomi and what we discuss on the show, or to connect with us, please visit the Steampowered website at steampoweredshow.com. You can also find out more about Naomi and her work on both LinkedIn and Twitter, the links for which will be in the show notes. If you enjoyed this conversation, please let me know. Subscribe to the show, leave a comment, and share this with your geeky or geek curious friends. You can also support Steampowered on Patreon and Ko-fi under Steampowered Show, the links for which will also be in the show notes. Thanks for tuning in, and we'll see you next time.